Hi, it's Alan, and today I want to share a conversation I recently had with Harry Rickleman. Harry is a psychotherapist here in Bethesda, Maryland, and he's also the founder of the Institute for Narrative Therapy. Uh, and I've been fascinated for a long time by the whole idea of narrative therapy because best I can figure out, narrative therapy is an attempt to understand human personality and human identity as narrative, as a story, and that basically we are the stories we tell ourselves about ourselves. Now, the therapy part of narrative therapy means that those self-narrated stories can change, that somehow we can take our experiences or, more accurately, our memories of those experiences, and we can somehow edit them into a story that can be a healthier and a happier expression of how we think about ourselves and how we present ourselves to the world. Now, as you listen to my conversation with Harry, you should keep an ear open for a line that Harry first shared with me before this interview. And it's a line of his that I've thought about often. And the line is, a good story is better than a bad story, but no story is better than a good story. Now, when Harry first said this to me, I thought, what? No story is better than a good story? This from a narrative therapist who's all about stories? Now, this struck me as kind of strange and borderline Buddhist, too, that somehow the stories we tell ourselves are just, you know, more words, that they're kind of a linguistic fog that prevents us from seeing the world and ourselves clearly. So during our interview, Harry and I talked again about why a narrative therapist would say no story is better than a good story. So here's my conversation with Harry, who begins by sharing his definition of narrative therapy. Here's Harry. Narrative therapy is it's helping people understand how stories have created their identity, their beliefs, their whole life, especially if they're unaware of how stories have created these things in their lives, and um, allowing them by kind of exposing the stories that they live by, gender narratives, nationalist narratives, religious narratives, family narratives, all these things makes up who they are. And by helping people understand what those narratives are, they have, like all therapy, I think, um, that works, it frees people up from being determined, I guess, by, by the stories that they tell about themselves. We did a workshop where this woman, we had this exercise, little 10-minute exercise, write for 10 minutes about your first name. And people would just, and, and the uh, the thing was, you had to write it in like Natalie Goldberg fashion. You had a, you couldn't lift your hand from the paper. You had to write, just keep on writing no matter what it was. Don't, don't stop and can't lift your uh, pen from the paper. And so people would write about their names and you can get a lot of stuff written in 10 minutes. Uh, and anyway, this woman, her, whose name was Sue, I think, talked about how horrible it was living her whole life not knowing whether she was a Susie or a Susan or a Sue kind of thing. And she decided, she realized, like, you know, I don't know who gave me this name. Uh, well, actually, she didn't know who gave her the name, but I don't want to be that anymore. But she'd never really, she'd, you know, felt bad about it the whole life, but it's kind of like one of these things that bothers you. And you don't exactly know, you never do anything about it, but it just kind of rolls around there all the time. So anyway, people hit the ground running. I mean, she was Sue, probably after Aunt Sue. The minute she was born, she had a name which identified who she was. There's a story 
behind who she was, and she was kind of shackled in some ways by by that name. And there's all kinds of of examples of that. So narrative therapy is just basically giving you alternatives to being who who you want to be. I suppose that sounds kind of idiotic. That sounds, that sounds right. That sounds good. When I was finishing up my uh, my MFA program. This is an MFA in creative writing. Yeah. In the field of literary theory, they knew so much about like, you know, how, about narratives and, you know, how it, they had this, this body of knowledge that nobody that I'd ever known in, in the therapy field knew about. Uh, um, so, and it all was based on how stories and meaning from stories and, you know, shape us. And I just thought to myself, God, how come, you know, how come these people know this? Right. And they're not, they're not therapists. They don't, they're not interested in doing therapy kind of thing. It seems like we should know this stuff. And then kind of coincidentally um, is when my, my long-time mentor turned me on to this Michael White thing. And, was, and I thought, well, wow, this is perfect. I can, there is actually a kind of an ethical way of working with people's stories, which I used to do all the time. I'm, I'm kind of hypnotized by people, by people's stories. And a lot of times it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm not really being a very good therapist because I'm asking him questions about like, wow, that's amazing. But you also find out that people feel less burdened by, you know, there's a lot of stories are crushing. Your own stories are crushing if you feel bad about them. Mm-hmm. You know, like people feel like, wow, this is actually kind of an interesting story. And how did you come about this? And blah, 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 blah. It kind of you, there's a certain release uh, which uh, which is therapeutic, right? I, re- I remember. I mean, one of the things that got me interested in it was years ago. I th- must have been in my 30s. I read a book by Dan McAdams called "The Stories We Live By." Uh-huh. So he's a psychologist. Who I think it was at Northwestern. I think still is. And it was this idea that people are sort of stories made flesh. People, you know, create meaning, create personality by the self narration of their own stories. And my memory was it had something to do with Eric Erickson, but I don't know enough about Eric Erickson or about sort of the deep thinkers in psychology. Right. What, what I, I want to try to do, I, I thought the best way to frame this would be to sort of imagine I came to see you that this was an intake session and I was going to be your patient. And I'd ask the kind of questions I would ask if I were coming to see you as a way of kind of figuring what this is. Okay. So... Imagine I come to you, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling depressed, I'm feeling a little lost. You know, I, I'm not happy. I'm not living my best life. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who says, go see Harry. He does narrative therapy. It's really useful. So I come see you. I tell you that I need help. What would we be doing? What are we going to be doing in the sessions when we do narrative therapy? Well, we'd have to, I mean, you have to tell me the story of of how you got to be the way you are you are at this particular point it would be something like well i'm however old i am and my wife just left me or you know i just realized i haven't done anything with my life and then i'd say well what what does that mean to do something with your life and, and where do you get that from where do you get that idea from and what's the story with your wife leaving you and you know how did that come about what what, what was the the reason for it in your mind. So I would question you about how things happened, trying to get at what conclusions you draw about you. Because if you say you're anxious and depressed, that entails that you're basically seeing yourself as the reason for these things that are happening. I mean, it's conceivable that you'd be like 
really anxious because Trump was president and you thought at any moment, you know, the brown shirts were going to come and like, you know, right. and tanks were going to be rolling in the streets, which I think a lot of people do either consciously or unconsciously. But there's, a, you know, normally people who are depressed feel that they've somehow failed in some way or aren't doing what they're supposed to be doing or they're lonely and they should be with somebody. There's a lot of right. stories about how we should be kind of thing. And so we would try to start to unravel some of those stories. And then I would listen for the language that you use in terms of how you tell those stories. You know, like sometimes they're like some stories are very overdetermined. All um, victim stories are kind of stories about lack of agency. You know, I could have done something. I didn't do something kind of thing. And so it's just trying to see how you create stories. What, you know, what kind we used to like get very specific about voice and things like that but after a while that was kind of it almost seemed almost intrusive in some ways to to break down someone's language like that but you know to, to try to listen for those kinds of things and just to see what kinds of um how how those stories are constructed and then look for unique outcomes well okay so you never you feel like here you are you're 55 years old you've never made anything of your life well, are you sure? Like, is that, have you ever done anything? Did, you know, have you, have you just been a, you know, well, I've just been so selfish and so self-absorbed and uh, all I ever care about is me. So really all you, so all you ever care about is you. You've never really like helped anybody or done anything kind of thing. And the process is kind of like relaying back to the person, this is how you think. And I don't know, where's that come from? You know, and who, who told you that? Like my grandfather was kind of a, an early nemesis for me. And I still to this day have times when I'll drift into some story about I was never kind of living up to at five years old or however his, his expectations, you know. He told me the only way you're ever going to make it in this world is to work hard. That's all that's important. And if you don't, you, you're you a failure. That's a pretty narrow lane to be living in. A lot of people probably feel that way. And, and a lot of people would say, well, how, how can you even question something like that? It seems like self-evident that that's the only way you're ever going to amount to anything is by really working hard. Well, if all my, my entire life I've been sitting around thinking, am I working hard enough? And somebody else is working harder than me and somebody else is, you know, whatever, that's going to be a pretty uncomfortable way to live and how do you get released from a story like that what i'm hearing you say i think is we'd spend some time kind of going through the archive you know my life's archive mm -hmm. and i'd be bringing forth you know for lack of a better word clips of film of this happened when i was eight and my grandfather talked to me like this when i was 10 and i had this girlfriend when i was in college and you can have all of these experiences and all of these reflections on the experience and they're all laid out in front of us jumbled because I'm not really doing it in any particular order. Right. And then that's all on the, on the table. So you've gotten to know me over the course. You've heard my language, how I, how I recount these things, how I tell these stories. What do I do with all that? That's all sitting there. Then what? Well, all the stories are parts of who you are. They all have created this, this particular being in the way that you see yourself. And so we would look at each story and say, well, what are, what are the things that created this part of yourself? And again, are there unique outcomes? Are there, there are ways that you don't look at that are in there that are part of the story, 
but because you have this one idea of how something should be and how you should be, you don't give any credit to these other things. And is that, do you want to keep doing that? Do you want to keep thinking like, well, I'm a loser based on this thing that I'm, that I've never been any good at or never been interested in it, but that seems to be what I should do versus what I really have done. I have a client who loves this Japanese cartoons, anime, and um, there's another, the manga. manga. You know, her mother kept telling her like, when are you going to grow up and start looking at adult things? And she felt horrible uh, about it and hid it from her and everything like that. But I mean, she's now in in art school Mm -hmm. trying to learn how to do this stuff Mm -hmm. because she loves it. I mean, so what do you do with that? Is you're just going to say, well, there are these conferences all over the country of all these people who come and they dress up like <laughs> Japanese characters and stuff like that. Are they all just nuts and losers? Or, or I mean, it seems to be pretty, uh, pretty popular thing. That's the thing. But she thinks she's humiliated and ashamed of this thing that she loves. And before, I mean, in the early going, she wouldn't even venture out to see one of these things. She was almost like an agoraphobic person. You know, most therapists, I think, aren't orthodox sure. kind of thing acceptance commitment therapy there there it is and they talk about how when you that you're that you're not your life keeps getting more and more and more narrow and confined and the possibilities for things that you can do kind of keep shrinking um because you're avoiding things that bring you pain which, which and it could be exposure to any number of like friends or jobs or things like that and you keep you keep trying to avoid getting hurt or getting your your ego wounded and so you just keep shrinking the thing the activities that you do right. um, and you end up being like pretty bleak and limited existence so I think that that narrative therapy is that way too when you think about it that that's kind of what what we're going for too is the idea that remember the whole thing about no story is better than a good story I'm gonna get to that one yeah well, I mean, it's great to have good stories. It really is. And and they're, they are better than bad stories. But to not have any stories that are that are limiting in any way is kind of the ultimate outcome. In other words, it's not that I wasn't born in Chicago on a certain day to a alcoholic father. Yeah, all that stuff is true. We could we could go back and, and, and construct all that stuff. But before you go any further, yeah. the... What you're referring to is what we talked about last time I saw you, which was the, the line was, a good story is better than a bad story, but no story is better than a good story. Right. And I remember walking out of here going, what, what was that? that? <laughs> you know, right. for, for a narrative therapist to be saying that. Yeah. So no story because it frees you up. Right. So obviously a good story, like I love myself is better than I hate myself. Right. But not being in any way inhibited by some rigid frozen narrative that the term is frozen narrative it's not going anywhere it's stuck kind of thing and so if you kind of melt that frozen narrative then you're released from it but i thought the whole the whole idea that one of the reasons why narrative therapy i thought was so intriguing was there's a neat this re-narration of events you take all of these pieces and you put them you re-edit them into something more life-affirming, something more positive, something that lets you move ahead. But there's some kind of narrative arc, for lack of a better word, to your life that gives it meaning. 
you can sort of see your life in chapters. You know, I, I was at home and I was a kid, then I went to college, then I had a girlfriend, then I moved to Washington, D.C., and then I got my first job, you know, and then, so there are all of these turning points. You know, I meet my wife, we get married, we have children. If I were writing this down, there would be chapter headings. You know, I meet Becca. It's a big thing to, you know, my kids are born, whoa, everything changes. Right. But that all I can understand and it gives my life meaning because I can sort of see it as a whole. I right. can see one thing leading to the next. That's what story is. Right. And to melt it all away is to really take away what gave it meaning in the first place, which is, in other words, the difference between melting it away versus saying, I'm going to build on the story to date. That's why it, it took me aback when you said no story is better than a good story, because I'm thinking, where's the story? The story was the thing that provided the meaning, and now you're blowing the whole thing up. Yeah, I, but for, number one, you wouldn't be coming to therapy if the, that story that you just told, that's not a, a, a story in need of therapy. I moved here, I met Becca, I did this, we had kids, I did this. I mean, that's that's a good story. If you have a particularly bad story... Yeah, I came out to D.C., first job I got, I got fired, fell in love with Becca, madly in love. After six months, she said, I'm not her, really her type, blah, 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 blah. What's wrong with me? It's kind of a, a story or a series of stories in need of therapy. So my story, I, I feel okay about my story uh -huh. to date. But what you're saying is, okay, you got, you got a good story. Well, no story is better than a good story. And I'm, and that's what I don't understand. Yeah. Why should no story be better than a good because story? Because something could come along, something could come along and blow your good story up. And let's just say the thing started not working. But what if your attitude was, I kind of take life, I've learned to kind of be the observer of stories, uh, uh, the observer of my own life. And as such, I'm looking at the way I construct these stories. And yes, they were all a lot of very good stories but they're also vulnerable to something coming along and kind of demolishing you. I, I know this doctor who is, was a friend of mine, really successful and really, and, and never, I always thought it was kind of interesting that he never, ever, there's never anything wrong with him. He is very competent, really, and a very nice guy. And twice I've seen his, him just have these real breakdowns when he had have some physical thing, he had some foot problem, and somehow it it got blown up into the fact that he wasn't was like everyone else, a vulnerable kind of thing, and it's just I guess I think a lot of people could stop at at good stories, you know, create good stories, tell yourself, you know, reconstruct the narrative, um, tell yourself, you know, change your name and and begin living as Edith rather than Susie. I, I don't want to screw somebody's story up. People don't seek help when things are going well. People don't seek religion when things are going well. It's when all hell breaks loose that people come for help. Okay, good. So you come for help. Let's get let, let's get all the meanings back together again kind of thing. And of course, yeah, just keep on going and be happy, which is wonderful. I wouldn't want to take that away. But don't be dependent on the good story, I guess is another way of saying it. Right. So one of the things when, when I saw you last time, I think the moment besides the good story is better than a bad story moment. The other one that I thought was fascinating, it's the one I probably thought about most since I was here last, was 
I said to you in, in sort of this context of role playing, I said, now imagine we've reassembled the film, we're telling a better story, and after a year or two of therapy with you, I've come up with a better story for myself. I'm feeling better. I'm getting on on with things. Mm -hmm. So I've resolved the grandfather. I've resolved the, my brother. I've resolved the things that may have been giving me, you know, may have been stumbling blocks. And now I have a good personal narrative to move on with. But then a year later, I come back and see you and say, look, everything personally is okay. I know I'm okay. I feel okay about myself. But I don't know what I'm doing here. I mean, in other words, I'm now having existential issues. I'm having issues about what are we doing here? Not what am I doing here, what kind of person I am, but some kind of collective sense of, you know, participation and belonging and community and really, for lack of a better word, a communal story. I don't need a personal story anymore. I'm anxious because I don't really know what, what, what we're doing here, all of us. I don't see any pattern. I don't see any point. And what you said to me, if I remember correctly, was, and I said to you, what would, how would you deal with that? And you said to me, well, I, you seem to be anxious about that. I would talk about your anxiety. And I'd say, well, I'm anxious because I don't see what the, what the pattern and purpose is. And instead of, instead of going to the narrative piece of that, you were going to the anxiety, you know, maybe we treat it with, maybe there was a way to treat it with medication, or maybe there would be a way to treat it with talk therapy, but there wasn't some sense of, of taking the narrative model for the individual and applying the narrative model to a group. And there are all kinds of ways to, to, yeah. to do that. But I'm, I'm puzzled why, if I'm remembering correctly, why the narrative piece didn't extend to some kind of collective and communal story. Um, it only applies to the individual. Anxiety is the most, I think, relevant thing to all of this narrative therapy. What, what you and Elizabeth were talking about was, why do we need to form an opinion and make the facts fit into that opinion? There was this term called suture, and suture was what we all do when we don't understand something. When I'm overwhelmed by my lack of communal spirit or what, whatever it is, and what we try to do is we, we'll take anything, anybody who can give us something to sew that sucking wound up, I'll buy it. So if I'm a if I'm a charismatic leader uh, of some kind or, or or a therapist or whatever, and I can tell you, look, I can understand why you're feeling like you don't know what's going on here, but you know, I know what's going on here, and because I'm so charismatic, I'm going to tell you what the meaning of life is, and you're going to feel so much better when you leave, and. I'm glad that you're feeling better until the next existential despair comes up. But ultimately, uh, the story has a bad ending. I hate to say it, unless you believe in the afterlife. But part of the... What, what story has a bad ending? Life. <laughs> you know, I am not getting, I'm not getting stronger. You know, I am not growing more hair. I guess I could. I guess there's something, some product. But we're on the downhill. And... There's got to be a way of people dealing with that um, because really the feedback that, that old people get day after day after day is kind of an erosion of relevance. And so by all means, we need to figure out, I, I don't think there's an afterlife as far as I know. I don't know that, but who knows that? But, you know, um, I guess maybe dying with dignity is a story or something like that. Or, you know, if you're really concerned about community, 
you got to find a community. I think that is true. I think that. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, forget the afterlife for now, mm -hmm. but if you grew up in the Catholic church, say, right. you could understand your life in the context of the history of the church and the mission of the church and that there were people who came before you in the church and their children that you have that were baptized in the church. And the story of the church is the story that you live your small chapter in the bigger narrative of, uh -huh. of that mission. Right. That's a story mm -hmm. that basically provides meaning, structure, community, and so forth. There are narratives out there that you could say, I'm an individual, I have a story, worked it out with my granddad. I, I exist in community, and there's this, and again, it's a story-based community. It's not, you could argue that being a Red Sox fan is also a story-based community. It is. it is, because yeah. they have a history, and all the fans go, and they all know the story. It's, it's a, and, th and there's a big community there. Sure, sure. And the, and the question is, when you compare, you know, your commitment to the Red Sox to, if you were a Catholic, your commitment to the church, my guess would be the Catholic could say, well, baseball's a game, you know, and I understand there's a history and I enjoy it and so forth, but whether or not, some people I'm sure derive existential meaning from the, from the ups and downs of the Red Sox, yeah. but the church kind of puts that more front and center in terms of this is what we're doing here. That's what the point here is, is the, is the meaning piece and, you know, the fate of your soul and what you're going to do while you're here, you know, as opposed to, are they going to beat the Yankees in September and make it to the playoffs? Somewhat right. different. Right. Well, what if the story doesn't include me? What if I'm gay and I'm, I brought up Catholic and I believed in the um, Apostles' Creed and all this stuff, and I, I and I go into church and go to mass, and it's a working class thing, and we're all you know we got very good standards and ethics and all these things, but I just keep feeling like oh God, I don't feel like part of this community, and I feel like I'm not really, in, and then I realize oh shit, I'm gay. Huge stumbling block. Yeah, big. It's not inclusive. That story. Those stories are not inclusive enough. So, and, I, and the church rightly struggles with that, right? They, I mean, I know Catholics who are trying to find a way. And, you know, in all of these, you know, right. Orthodox Jews and you know, true. evangelical it, it's going on everywhere of some attempt to how how broad is this club? How broad is this story? Uh, right. Yes, and my aunt who died last year was probably the greatest person I ever knew. And she was a, a missionary. She was a, a Marian old missionary. She was a psychiatrist. She was a surgeon and she was a Catholic. And she believed in her own version of Catholicism that was kind of honed over the years working in these missions, dealing with people from different, completely different cultures, trying to find spiritual connections with these people rather than try to convert them. And th she thought that the popes up, up to Francis, anyway, were a bunch of horses' asses. She thought the whole male dominating, uh, you know, hierarchy in the church and, and every place else was a, a, a complete and utter, uh, it was horrible. And, um, but she would, I said to her, why don't you ever write anything? And she goes, I'm not, I'm not leaving any paper trail. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, 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 you know, I don't want to get, I'm not trying to get kicked out of the church. She had her own Catholicism. It worked for her, but it was very different from any Catholicism I ever grew up in, you know, with the emphasis on this whole idea of like, uh, of sinning. And um, we are born in a state of sin. First of all, it's like kind of psychotic in a way, like some guy's going to come down and they're going to beat the shit out of him and crucify him. And he came and did it for us. I don't know. That, it's a, 
it's kind of I, I mean it's gross and like that and the movie that Mel Gibson movie which was a beautiful movie I was watching that movie and, of the Christ. yeah it was beautiful I, I like his face like all these cuts and everything it was all like uh, like a beautiful painting but it's like I don't know that that idea and I I'm 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 afraid I'm afraid of even saying this blaspheme you know it's like one of the you're Did going you you're, you're Catholic? Yeah, yeah yeah you're going to hell I mean I'm going to hell but anyway there's a story if it works great the, the most powerful story though the one that's that'll work the best for you is not not being attached to those the identifiers in these stories it's kind of like therapy extrapolated out into like you say you know things were going good for a couple of years and then this crushing thing occurred to you like oh my god what's the meaning of life well you've you've somehow you another story kind of seeped back in and you're we've got to kind of see what kind of flexibility there is in that story and break it down and what kind of what would it be like if you had meaning like what would it be like what would it feel like if you really somehow realized that it's all about the community what what is that idea and a lot of stories the suture thing is like a lot of people just kind of go oh yeah oh yeah that's right it's all about it's all about family okay so that's all it took yeah i was thinking lately like well god we're all getting old and i just think i'm gonna spend my life you know, making sure that all my friends are are okay. Okay, well, what brought that on kind of thing? I mean, it's a great idea. It's a very noble idea. Am I going to do it? I'm probably going to do it when I start feeling really bad. And I'm, I'm going to be kind of going, oh, I got to get back into that story so I can make myself feel good again. But I know we have this these ways of thinking that somehow that the anxiety of living, that there's something that we can do about that. I hate to be pessimistic. I don't... Well, you know, it's funny. When I walked out of here last time, I know you had told me that you grew up Catholic and kind of lapsed. And my impression was, I don't know if you said it explicitly or I just kind of extrapolated from what you said, but I sensed there was a real Buddhist strain in your mm-hmm. in your way of thinking. Is that is that fair? And do you, do you get a yeah. lot from that? Yes. That, that was a... See, there's an example of you. You said something about like you asked Elizabeth if she had had some major shift because right. she remember a shift, right. and I was thinking when I was listening to that, that would be that would be one for me, was that the first experience I had was reading Baba Ram Das, but it was like, oh, oh my God, you know, I'm I'm a person. I grew up Catholic. I liked a lot of it. Then it became really oppressive, and I I was starting to kind of titrate down from a you know like I would just. One day, you know, one day at a time, try to get, we, we call it being a recovering Catholic. You know, you're t- trying to get, be un-Catholic one day at a time. Then all of a sudden, here comes this book of Eastern philosophy. And it's like, oh, man. It, and it was this this feeling like, this is what I always thought was the truth kind of thing. Do you remember what in the book kind of threw that switch for you? Uh, well, first of all, I would say in general, that they speak about your mind as the mind. Everything in, in Buddhism is impersonal. There's no individual kind of success be, beating the odds. Every dilemma is everyone's dilemma. There's no good guys and bad guys. There's no Catholics and then the rest of the people who are going to hell because they're not Catholic. And somehow if they become Catholic before they die, they'll go to heaven. Kind of, there was none of that ex- exclusivity thing. The idea that the mind has these tendencies and that if you can just look at the way you think 
rather than it's like looking at your thoughts rather than from your thoughts, which is the opposite of kind of observing. Right. You know, you're like an automaton, like, oh, like a, that is a fabulous idea. It's not like I'm a loser or I'm great or whatever. It's that the mind thinks this way. And, and it's the mind's job, if you've got a problem, it's the mind's job to obsess and obsess and obsess over it. And they they talk about this. And all the foibles of humanity are what happens when we don't look at and observe and control our minds. And that, in a way, is what no story is about. Right. I mean, that's precisely what I thought when you said it, which was these Western monotheistic traditions are so story-laden. Yeah. And when you say no story is better than good stories, then like East East beats West and we're done. <laughs> you know, it's like right. the story you're telling yourself is just a fiction and it really has no bearing on anything. So let's get with the real program, which is how you think about thinking and all the boot Buddhist stuff. It, they do tell stories. They they tell tons of stories. Like but what, like what's a Buddhist story? Like uh, there's kind of a funny guy that, that's the butt of all the jokes. And uh, Nasruddin is his name. And Nasruddin does all these idiotic things all the time. And it's a way of people to go, like, that's how we are, too, kind of thing. There's all these gods have stories, too. But they're, they're so abstract sure. and, and removed that we don't say, Uncle Shiva always hated my guts. On the subject of Buddhism and, and story, there was a book I read many years ago by Roger Kamenetz called The Jew and the Lotus. And the story was about the Dalai Lama uh, has a problem. And his problem is he wants to go bring his people back to Tibet. And he's been living in exile and he can't get there. So he decides that he wants to talk to people who have had some experience living in exile and getting back to the land. So he has this audience with a bunch of rabbis who make this pilgrimage to Dharamsala, whatever the name of the place is where he lives. And, and the book is sort of about the secret to return was the story. The story that you tell at the Passover Seder, the fact that you see your identity and your peoplehood tied up in this narrative about exile and return, that's the, that's the core narrative to the whole thing. Passover is the big holiday because it's about, it's about leaving Egypt and trying to get to the promised land and being thrown out of the promised land and getting back again. And you finish and you say next year in Jerusalem. And Buddhists, best I know, they have the stories you mentioned, but there's no kind of communal story about the experience of the of the people, right? right? Right. And what's fascinating about the book is, you know, I'm Jewish and you can make the case, be careful what you wish for, because you'll end up back there and yeah. and then what? You know, right. what 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 next? Yeah. And that to me is kind of almost a narrative problem. It's a story about returning. You know what you did wrong the first two times you were there. Now it's your third shot, you know, good luck. Uh -huh. But it's that tension between what the story gives you and what the Dalai Lama is wrestling with in a very practical way, which is he's not where he wants to be. Anyway, that that's, I, I think it's relevant. Does story have value? Does story do something for you? Does it give you some sense of forward motion, not just in your life, but in history? Mm -hmm. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. We may have talked about this last time, but I just remember hearing this this idea that the American narrative is all about there's a better place 
over there. If we can just get over the Atlantic Ocean and get to America, that's where everything is great. And then you get to America and you, you kind of go, well, if we can just go west, it's too repressive here in the east, so we'll get in the, you know, there's no land, we'll go out here, and then you get killed by the Indians. But your thing was, yeah, you better be careful for what you wish for, because they're probably there probably are better places, you know, uh, relatively speaking. But the engine of the narrative doesn't change. You get to where you're going, and you kind of notice that you're thinking like, well, this is pretty good, but <laughs> maybe we should go back east. The story used to be that the members of the Greatest Generation, you know, had a very meaningful life because they they defeated fascism. Yeah. You know, and I remember I remember being in therapy years ago, 20, 30 years ago, when someone in the group said, you know, my grandfather did great things, yeah. defeated fascism, and what am I doing? I'm just working at a software company or whatever he, this guy was doing. And maybe that's the answer to your question is people suddenly think, ah, we're back in the fight against fascism and this is going to be what animates me, just like it did for my grandfather. I, I hope the young people are as you know resilient as my father's generation was, you know, those... Because those people, yeah, they were they were the great generation, but boy, were they unhappy when they, the, those people when they came back from the war. Oh Lord, I mean, because nobody nobody really got any help for any of it. And you talk about, you know, God knows what happened when when you were over there fighting those people. I, I think I think there's a real beauty in narrative therapy, and it's it's really about deconstruction in a lot of ways, deconstructing stories. It's kind of the difference between being in a greatest, the greatest horror movie ever made versus watching the greatest horror movie ever made. If you're in the greatest horror, horror movie ever made, oh my God, you're just, you're just running for, for your life and you're scared and whatever. If you're watching the greatest horror movie that ever was ever made, you're thinking like, great movie this is. I'm, you know, you're freaked out, but you're just thinking like, wow, this is amazing. I, I said to my mom, why, why do you think that the Catholics are the chosen people, whether actually the Jews were the chosen people, but the Catholics, you know, uh, branch off from them? But so I go, Mom, everybody, every religion in the world thinks they're the right religion. And, and she said, you know, that's true. The difference is we're right. And I'm thinking to myself, how on earth can you possibly come to that conclusion. But I, I would say this about Catholicism and, you know, reason for hope. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying your grandmother was right or wrong. My mother. It was your mother. Yeah. I mean, think about the Second Vatican Council and the fact that, you know, up until that time, I mean, for, you know, close to 2,000 years, there was kind of a super sessionary argument about what the church was relative to the Jews, mm -hmm. which was they're old, they're dead, it's over, new covenant, new everything, this is the new deal. And, you know, after World War II and the Holocaust and everybody sits down in Rome and says, let's revisit the story, let's take a look at where we're at, and okay, the Jews, they got a place at the table. They're not responsible for the death of Christ. You know, they're, that we haven't, that they're still in the game in a meaningful way and God has not abandoned their covenant. Holy cow. I mean, the Jewish community just went, you know, hallelujah, let's let's talk. Let's mm -hmm. let's get down to it and see, you know, what else can we do together?
Yeah. And that to me, I mean, again, it's not a given. Who knows what, where we'll be in a hundred years. Maybe the church will decide that was a huge, you know, that was a huge error. I don't know. But to me, that's just like, that. that's, that's a case of the church being able to sort of look at the story they're telling themselves about themselves saying, that's not working. That's really taking us down a real bad hole. So yeah. that's off. We're on to, we've tweaked, you know, this particular part of the story. And that to me, I think is just, immensely powerful as opposed to everybody in Rome just saying, all right, let's just fold up shop and go home. This is, we're done. What I, what I did want to do to say one though, was this idea that you said about like the word is not the thing. And what is really, I think the, the most exquisite thing about this whole narrative thing is this idea that what Lacan referred to as the real it's really hard to get in touch with the real because the only thing that that belongs in the real is that which hasn't been languaged over because once it gets languaged over then the language like you said becomes the th then the language which was supposed to be the solution becomes the problem what's real is trauma what's real is something that that oh my god it, there's no language for this because it's never happened before and so people are experiencing this thing in a pure unadulterated thing it could be falling in love it could be getting raped it could be you know who knows what but it ha it's something that we don't have language for and what we do is wh when there is something like that well come in and see a therapist oh my god what was that like oh geez that must i must have been horrible and you start languaging it and you start you know and and with the idea that well this will cover over the trauma but then pretty soon the language becomes kind of this new, well, we need more language. Uh, let's talk to the people over there. They've, they've dealt with language and, you know, like, well, how do we, next thing you know, you're doing advertising and, you know, you know so I guess that's kind of the Tower of Babel too, I guess. It's yeah. like the language becomes the, the problem right. rather you than the solution. And it's funny because you know, the, the word is not the thing. So I, I worked for close to 20 years in National Geographic magazine. Uh -huh. And I remember working on a story about uh, Egypt's Valley of the Kings. Uh -huh. So during the day I'm writing about Pharaoh and the, you know, the necropolis and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. At night I was going to a Bible study at a, a, a Temple Bethel and Bethesda here. And we were doing verse by verse through Exodus. So during the day, Pharaoh, at night I'm doing the Moses thing. Uh -huh. And we read... The second commandment, thou shalt not make graven images. And it dawned on me really for the first time. And I mean, I've read that commandment a thousand, it's the second one. You know, in the top 10, it's number two. And to me, it suddenly dawned on me that it, it's, the word is not the thing. The reason you shouldn't make pictures of things, you know, of God, or really it doesn't even say make pictures of God. It says don't make pictures. Mm -hmm because the picture will become the thing. Yeah. You'll mistake the image of the thing for the thing itself. Exactly. And I don't, you know, and, and that voice says, I don't want you to do that. Okay. I don't want you to miss what, miss the real for this facsimile that you're gonna create and then you're gonna get fixated on it. And I worked in a place that was, you know, the ziggurat of the graven image. I don't wanna blow anybody's hope uh, or I don't want to blow anybody's anybody's stories that are working for them. But I, I just think ultimately what was fascinating to me about narrative therapy was the idea of deconstructing the stories that weren't working and finding unique outcomes, but not then making a new story 
that was just as flimsy as the old one because ultimately you know you're going to be back here in in two years <laughs> you know why not why not have a way of deconstructing these things and every time you start feeling like whatever it is that you're feeling you kind of go like like i do this in the middle of the night or something like that i'll wake up and i'll be worried about something and i'll go i'll be going okay why don't you just take a few deep breaths and look at look, look at that story like rather than be in it what what's what's happening there look at look at your thoughts is this reality or is this your thoughts? And hope is another version of that, only it's a nice version of it. Mm-hmm. Something could happen to me today, and I I could be running over to the Catholic Church going, please take me back. I'm, you know, I'm I'm scared shitless, I'm gonna die or whatever. I need community, I need God and help me. Mm-hmm. You know, but for the time being, I like to break them down and not be not be controlled by them, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, you said they'll be back in two years. Maybe I'll come back and see you in two years. Well, I hope so. Yeah. I, I, I hope so. Thanks again to Harry for taking time to talk with me. And one of the threads from this conversation that I'll certainly keep tugging on is this idea of communal stories, about narratives that are bigger than the self. Maybe to put it another way, if individual personalities are healthier when they have the quality of a good story, of a narrative that's going somewhere, then do groups of people, do communities, do healthy societies require that same narrative structure? Or is Harry right that even in the communal sense, no story is better than a good story? Plenty more to come about this. Uh, All right, that's it for now. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. If you feel all right, just say yeah. I said if you feel all right, say yeah. (laughs) 